This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus, Policy Genius, and our contributors at Patreon.com. This time of year, our minds often turn to legends from the other side of the veil. Creatures, events, and even objects that are reminders of death. Memento mori. Fall is perfect for considering the change all around us that is happening constantly, but often goes unnoticed. It stands out now, reminding us that there is a season for everything. And the nice thing about seasonal change is that you can always see it coming. It's predictable. Your senses tell you what to expect. And if those fail you, there's always the calendar hanging up in your kitchen, garage, or closet. But what about the changes that you don't see coming? Those are the frightening ones. The ones that keep us up at night. The what-ifs. Why don't they ever have a warning? Well, maybe they did, and you just didn't understand it. Throughout time, mankind has come face to face with harbingers of doom, and history will attest that those messengers appear in thousands of forms. How can we possibly know what to look for when they next arrive? Do their shapes evolve over time as cultures die out or undergo extreme changes? Is the darkness they represent sentient enough to understand that in order to be seen and understood, it must become something familiar? Maybe even something that we've all seen in the mirror at some point in our lives. A child. In 1996, a journalist from Abilene, Texas, encountered something a lot like that, that he could not explain. And the story he shared back then, which you'll hear tonight if you have the stomach for it, well, let's just say it went viral. More than a few people, even some of our own research corps, will tell you that Mr. Bethel's story is the origin story for what are now known as Black Eyed Kids. The legends now run rampant on the internet, and some say coincide with the birth of urban legend repository, Creepypasta. But is it that simple? Is it mystery solved before we even begin? What if that's only the tip of the iceberg? What if these wolves in a frightening form of sheep's clothing have been appearing in one way or another for a long, long time? Why do they keep coming back? And infinitely more pressing, What is it that they want? To get to the bottom of that, we're going to have to dive deep into the Astonishing Legends rabbit hole and take you places that, well, frankly, no one wants to go. Won't you join us? Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Hell is empty, and all the devils are here. 
William Shakespeare, The Tempest. Join us tonight for part one of our two-part series on black-eyed kids, presented for your listening pleasure in stereo. Indeed. A quick correction from the Bell Witch series. Sylvester Stallone was apparently injured by mistake at birth, causing the partial paralysis in his face. It is not attributable to Bell's palsy, although the effects are quite similar. Also, Betsy Bell had nothing to do with it. No. Okay, good. Or Kate. No. All right, great. They're in the clear. (laughs) Well, before we get started tonight... Oh, there's one... Wait, sorry. There's one other quick thing. I'm Uh sure you wanted to gloss over it. I just wanted to let everybody know, Forrest is now well aware... How many people have seen and love (laughs) Short Circuit? I want to say thank you, listeners. Our point Uh, has been made. No, no, I'd seen it myself when it came out, both one and two, and I think there might be more. I've lost count. The point is that I saw them when they came out. They're fun movies. I knew that a lot of people had seen them. But we're in the internet age, and I you don't know how many of the younger listeners, you know, even know what we're talking about. So I, I was trying to keep us on track here. In my view, maybe it wasn't as big as Goonies. I as never said a, it was. <laughs> but you do yeah. have to admit, we got a lot of messages about it. You're absolutely right. It's a much beloved movie. Yes. My point was like, if you said, oh, how many of you seen Goonies? Well, people love that film. And I saw it at the time. Now, when did you see it, Scott? Goonies? Yeah. For the first time, I, I saw Goonies <laughs> about five years ago. Well, I will admit that. That. Okay, so that's not like it, seeing it at all. But I but, did used to see yeah. Martha Plimpton. She lived very close to us in New York, and I would see her all the time, but I don't know her. That's a pretty good get. I'll yeah. give you that. All right, well, before we get started tonight, a special message for those of you who enjoyed the Kelly Hopkinsville Encounter series we did a few weeks ago. You might remember that in that series, we pointed to a citation error in a peer-reviewed paper published by Frontiers in Psychology. The paper itself was supposed to be a lesson on teaching critical thinking and pointed out with the citation that the Kelly case was a perfect example of pseudoscience in action and nothing more than an alcohol-induced hallucination. The problem was that the source cited didn't say that at all. Yeah, and one of our listeners, Blake Smith, an avowed skeptic, but otherwise great guy. (laughs) Again, I just don't, he and Cogs, I don't know why they're listening. Uh, He was somewhat dismayed by not only the discovery of such a mistake in the journal, but probably the way we pointed it out as well. Seeing as he has his own podcast, Monster Talk, which takes a skeptical look at cryptids and the like, he invited us to come on and talk about the Kelly case, as well as what we felt was a clear misrepresentation of its cause. Here's a fun excerpt from our appearance on his show earlier this week. You know what people suck at? Abandoning their theories. Oh, yeah. No, for sure. No matter what they find. Nobody's abandoning, you know? It's very hard to be egoless because that's not a very human thing to be. We want to be right. We want to be correct. And we want other people to believe us. Well, that's a good take on how the conversation went. You know, very friendly, skeptics. And open-minded, free-thinking geniuses like us hashing it out. (laughs) In addition to that, Blake writes for Skeptic Magazine, and he actually wrote up a detailed article or essay on the citation error and how it all played out. We have a link to that with today's show notes. Monster Talk is actually a great show, and we have a lot of faith in the skeptical approach to the stories we like to cover. The approach that Blake takes to monsters or tales of cryptids is fascinating and should be considered a model for anyone on the path to solving a mystery. We embrace skepticism ourselves. We just like to leave a little more room for mystery. So if you want to check out our appearance on there, find Monster Talk wherever you get your podcasts. And especially look for the three-part series called American Goblins, 
We're featured in part three, but we recommend the entire series, of course. World-famous skeptic Joe Nickel, whom we frequently reference, is a friend of Blake's and has a great interview in part two as well. Our last reminder for tonight is to remember that we have a Los Angeles meetup coming up at a bar called Idol Hour in North Hollywood. It's going to start at 4.30 on Saturday, December 2nd. You can RSVP at our Facebook page for the event, or you can send an email to astonishingcontact at gmail.com with RSVP in the subject line so Tess can separate it out and we can get a good headcount going. All right, that's astonishingcontact all one word, at gmail.com, RSVP in the subject line, or just RSVP on Facebook, and thank you. All right, let's get started. So the first story we're going to lead off with, this is really considered the seminal story. I I fear I'm saying seminal way too much (laughs) these days, but we try and find you the origin story or the first one that's well known, and I think this is it. Yeah, this is the one that a lot of people point to as probably the first case of black-eyed kids. In the modern internet age, that is. Well, in the modern internet age, but a lot of people think it's where it started. Exactly. that is something that we don't necessarily agree with, and you'll find that out as the show goes on. Right. This is a series of events that unfolded for a journalist in Texas who, at the time, was pretty busy covering, like, city council meetings and politics for his local paper in Abilene. Right. And he was younger at that point, starting out in his career, but he'd been in journalism pretty much his whole life. He worked in college on journalism, kind of like you did, Forrest. Yeah, because well, you worked for the connected. Daily Trojan, right? Uh, yeah, I actually did write for the USC Daily Trojan, but mostly in the uh, entertainment section. That's where you met Rich Haddam's wife, right? Yeah, in that circle of friends. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So when you look at Brian Bethel, someone who's starting out with a career in journalism, you can bet that they've been trained to be observant take notes, record things, because they're going to have to write about it later. So it really trains you to take notice of what's going on. But in this case, it could be so strange that it's being imprinted onto your brain forever and ever. And so, of course, you know us. We did reach out to Mr. Bethel. He's not that hard to find. He's still working for the newspaper in Abilene, and we sent him an email. But he has not responded yet. And Honestly, I didn't expect him to. He's told this story hundreds upon hundreds of times. It was on Monsters and Mysteries in America several years ago, and he's been interviewed a lot of times. And one of the things that we found as we've done our show is that people who are at the center of something like this, there's a point at which they don't want to tell it anymore. (laughs) After your 200th telling, because it's not just media outlets, but it's also family and friends. They want to hear about it. You get tired of it. And really, I'm sure he figures like, it's out there. Just retell it if you want, but that's it. So what we're doing is bringing you the following account, paraphrased directly from what is believed to be an original internet posting by him. This posting was made back in January of 1998, just under two years after the event originally happened, and it's excerpted from the internet archives at the Wayback Machine, having been snapshotted by them on February 13th, 2005. In 1996, in Abilene, Texas... A young journalist named Brian Bethel was headed out to pay his internet access bill at a shopping center downtown where there was a drop box. At the time, Abilene had about 110,000 people in it. Brian arrived around 9.45 p.m. after having driven 15 minutes from his apartment. He notes in his account that at that time, one of the earliest movies based on a video game, Mortal Kombat, was playing at the $1.50 theater in the strip center. Brian parked near the marquee so he could see his checkbook by the faint light coming in through his windshield. 
he began writing the check he needed to keep his internet connection active. No sooner had he started when... Two boys stood quietly at the car window. For some reason Brian did not understand, a wave of terror washed over him. His fight-or-flight response was amping up. He wasn't sure exactly how old they were, but he guessed they were somewhere in the range of 10 to 14. The first boy, seemingly the oldest, was taller than the second one and was wearing a hooded shirt with a gray, checkered pattern and jeans. His skin was olive and he had medium brown hair. Brian sensed confidence from him. The second boy was smaller with pale skin and freckles and he was apparently much more nervous. He too had a hoodie, but it was light green and his hair appeared orange. From what Brian could tell, they were not related. Here's the thing about Brian. This is not the first time he's experienced something unusual apparently. He goes on to point out that he gets a feeling whenever something strange is about to happen to him. A change in perception that while making him aware that something is horribly wrong, also conveys a sense to him that it is already too late to do anything about it. Brian rolled his window down, but only just a little. Hey mister, what's up? We have a problem. You see, my friend and I want to see the film, but we forgot our money. We need to go to our house to get it. Wanna help us? Uh, well... At that moment, the second boy, the younger one, apparently looked at the older one as if shocked, not at his audacious request, but at the fact that it didn't work. Brian didn't immediately open the car door, and he also noticed that they were both apparently getting agitated. Come on, mister. We just want to go to our house, and we're just two little boys. Something was very strange about the way they were speaking. They had no fear. Their diction was perfect. It was as though they were adults. Bethel, being a journalist, had interviewed countless children, even at this relatively early stage in his career. Never had he encountered kids like these. There was no stammering, no shuffling body language. The older boy calmly spoke directly and precisely with no sign of any fear at all. No fear of speaking to a perfect stranger. Uh, um, what movie were you going to see? Mortal Kombat, of course. Now, the smaller boy was a few steps behind the older one as he nodded in agreement with that statement. Brian glanced quickly at the marquee, his fear building. The last screening of Mortal Kombat had started well over an hour ago. There was no way they were seeing that movie. But it didn't matter, because looking at the marquee was a mistake. Now they knew Brian was stalling. Come on, mister, let us in. We can't get in your car until you do, you know. Just let us in, and we'll be gone before you know it. We'll go to our mother's house. Brian's mind must have gone into some kind of a trance. His hand was nearly at the door lock, about to open it, when he had the momentary presence to snap it back before doing so. And then, his mind was back. Only then, at that precise moment, did Brian realize something. Their eyes... Their eyes were pitch black. There was no iris, no pupil, just blackness, gently reflecting the red and white lights of the movie marquee. The fact that he could see that, their cold black eyes, apparently shocked them. He wasn't supposed to notice. He knows. 
He knows they aren't what they seem. Come on, mister. We won't hurt you. You have to let us in. We don't have a gun. Brian froze. He knew they didn't need a gun. He reached for the gear shift. We can't come in unless you tell us it's okay. Let us in. Brian jammed his car into reverse and tore out of the parking lot, thanking God that he didn't hit anyone backing up. He could still see the boys peripherally, but when he turned to look one last time directly at them, they were gone. The sidewalk by the theater was empty. Not a soul stood there. Brian had a friend back at Angelo State University's paper, The Rampage, named Chad. When he told him the story, Chad was hanging out with a female friend who stated that she had some psychic ability. Chad put Brian on speakerphone. Brian retold the story, saving the detail of the black eyes for dramatic effect at the end, and he was stopped cold by the woman. These children had black eyes, right? I mean, all black eyes? Uh, yeah. One night last week, I had a dream about children with black eyes. They were outside my house wanting to be let in. But there was something wrong with them. It took me a while to realize it was the eyes. So what did you do? I knew if they came in, they would kill me. And they would have killed you too, if you had let them into your car. Wow, mortal combat indeed. Or maybe immortal versus mortal combat. Yeah, of all the movies. That story (laughs) is really fascinating to me. It also gives you an idea of the time period. If you're old enough to remember when that movie came out. I looked it up, actually. I I don't think I even realized it was a film. On Wikipedia, it says it's the fourth movie based on a video game. But it was, I think, the most successful one. It brought in, up until that point, brought in $122 or something. Yeah. By this time, it must have been out a while if it was at the $1.50 theater. <laughs> That's true. Good deduction there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can almost see this little strip center and uh, yeah. this experience and everything that he went through. And got to tell you, it's chilling. Let me paint it this way. You've ever been in your car at night and maybe you're doing a chore like that. It's completely dark. You're just using the light coming through the windshield and you're doing a little task. Maybe you're reading something, you're filling out a check or you're involved in something. And then suddenly there's somebody outside your car window. And I don't care who it is. It could be a nice little old lady. You're startled. Yeah. Because you weren't expecting it. For sure. So this latest series we're covering on The Great Courses Plus is really fascinating. Death, Dying, and the Afterlife. Lessons from World Cultures. Yeah, where's Rich Hannum when you need him? This course is right up his alley, especially the afterlife part. Hollywood bigwigs like Rich are super busy, (laughs) but here's something that might make it easier for him. The Great Courses Plus now has a new audio feature within their app for both iOS and Android devices, so you can stream audio-only versions of the courses directly to your smartphone or iPad and listen to them just like a podcast. And you can switch back and forth between the audio and video versions seamlessly. But we're going to tell you more about that in upcoming shows. For right now, since this course is a little Halloween-y in theme, you know, death and all, why don't you tell everyone a fun fact from the series? All right, how about this? In the last 50 years, over 25 million people worldwide have reported a near-death experience. Wow. All right, now you tell us something about the course. All right, well, this series is like a memento mori. As we mentioned earlier in the show, it's a reminder that we must all die one day. And it's not meant to be morbid. It's just a motivation to perfect one's character while alive. Now, some people believe in an afterlife, but what if you don't? What if you believe that when you die, that's it. Lights out. End of story. As Professor Mark Berkson points out, philosophers would suggest that it's impossible to experience or imagine what it's like being dead. Freud writes, quote, 
Our own death is unimaginable. And whenever we make our attempt to imagine it, we can perceive that we really survive as spectators. At bottom, no one believes in his own death. Whoa. Is that your Keanu impression? <laughs> yep. <laughs> mind blown. Well, why not blow up your own mind or at least expand it by watching or just listening with a new app to The Great Courses Plus, now with over 8,500 lectures and counting on everything from history and science to photography and cooking. And you can sample it for free with unlimited viewing or now listening for a whole month anywhere you want. To start, just go right now to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Hello, everybody. I'm David Mars, producer of the Hot Wampa Science Fiction Podcast. And when I'm not working on my own show, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. One thing I did want to say is that as you hear these stories tonight, sure, there's a lot of people who are going to say, come on, they just want to be on the internet or they're just telling a tall tale. And, and some of these cases, that might be true. But one of the authors who's written some of the main books about this is Jason Offit. And he actually was a journalist and taught journalism on the university level. And he actually interviewed Brian way back when, much closer to the incident, for some of his books. That's because, right. again, it's one of the main stories. And the one thing that impressed me in listening to him talk about it, Mr. Offit, is that when he talked to Brian personally on the phone, he said you could hear the fear. He was still really freaked out and scared by this, especially when you go to recount this. And the people that we've talked to personally and that we know, when something like that is very startling and chills you to the bone, when they recount it, there's a little bit of PTSD with it. Yeah, They sure. don't want to talk about it because they get that same exact feeling of fear. The other thing about Brian's story, and people will tell you that it's a creepypasta thing, which we're going to explain here later in this episode, but Brian's a real guy. Yeah. And yeah. you can see him tell the story and yeah. talk about it. Yes, he's a journalist, but his position, especially at this point, is... He didn't want it to happen to him. He, <laughs> no, you know, it's no. not something that he was trying to get famous for. He hasn't written a ton of books about it. He's just trying to do his job as a journalist in Abilene. Exactly. And you brought up a good point because even with the Bell Witch story, which we just covered, people say like, well, Martin Van Buren Ingram, he was trying to sell papers. Right. So anything in the 19th century, he's trying to sell papers. And that may have been the case back then because sensational journalism did sell papers, as it does today. There's a lot more muddy waters you have to kind of navigate through. But he wasn't really doing that, and he's not written books. He's not writing a script. As far as we can tell, there's no monetary gain in this, and it's only brought scrutiny to him. Yeah. But it was so shocking, he felt he had to share it. And its scrutiny is not fun in these kinds of stories. No. A lot of people will accuse you of making things up. They'll make fun of you. They'll say you're crazy, yeah. tinfoil hat time. Yeah, I don't like the scrutiny we've gotten. Yeah, we're getting <laughs> a little scrutinized yeah. more and more these days, you know, as our audience grows. And that's fine. We're getting, I've, yeah, I've got yeah. some calluses, but that's <laughs> fine. I think that... It's important to understand, though, that it's not like he went on some giant publicity tour. Yes, he was on Monsters and Mysteries in America. I promise you that did not make him rich. Oh, the no. entertainment business does not work that way. Right, so right. it's an interesting thing. Well, let's talk a little bit about what this phenomenon is. Okay. Like, you know, as of right now, I think we have a lot of listeners who came to this show knowing about Black Eyed Kids. They'd heard of them because it's not like some of the obscure things that we cover. It's got some traction in the legend world, and yeah, yeah. more people know about it. However, there's probably a few listeners who have no idea. And so what they're hearing, if they're still listening, yeah. <laughs> is only a couple of stories right now. We framed it out a little bit at the top of the show, and then we shared Brian's story, which is considered, as you said, the seminal story in modern times for the black-eyed children. 
let's go into a little more detail about how this works. And I did want to mention the authors that we referred to for yes. a lot of the information we came up with. David Weatherly. Yes. He's the author of the book, The Black-Eyed Children, which mm-hmm. is considered a great reference work on them. He did a lot of serious research and went a long way towards looking at theories and ideas and yeah. skeptical viewpoints and origins and all that. And it's a great read. He's what you would consider a field researcher, kind of like John Keel in that vein. Yes. A uh, little after that generation, but some guy who goes out and talks to people, checks out locations, as most of these folks are. They are a collector first of these kinds of stories and then really investigate them to write their books. Yes, exactly. And then we also want to cite Gary Michael Vasey, who is the author of a book called The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids. He compiled a bunch of stories because he has websites and he's written a bunch of books himself about hauntings and local hauntings and he's experienced things personally. And we're thrilled to say that he's actually going to be on the show next week for part two of this series as a guest. And Forrest, you also just mentioned Jason Offit, of course. Yeah, he's been in some interviews. He's on, uh, of course, Jim's show, Paranormal Podcast. Jim Harold. Yes, Jim Harold. And you'll hear a lot of entries because he's very prolific. He's written a ton of fun books. One, I think that I first keep on to because of the shadow people thing was darkness walks the shadow people among us Uh, his latest book is a bad day for the apocalypse which is a fun title and i just want to read this other fun title how to kill monsters using common household items (laughs) which i love the title (laughs) that's great but yeah he's interviewed a ton of people all over the world who have had black-eyed kids experiences part of this phenomenon is very informative and illuminating because you realize it's not just the U.S. Again, people that want to compartmentalize this, and I get that, want to say, well, it's just the U.S., it's just the internet, it's just this time frame. Yes, and an important point to make there is that the reason that they're doing that, the compartmentalization, the reason that you do that, it goes back to the Frontiers in Psychology paper, it is the need for cognitive closure. People want to put a package on it, and it's easier for them to think that it's just a cultural phenomenon, an exaggeration, mass hysteria, whatever else you want to say, if it only is in one region. Yeah. Well, yeah, oh, that clearly points to, well, it's just in the U.S. Right. That doesn't make sense. Why would a weird paranormal phenomenon only happen in one country? country because it's made up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But you're going to find, as with all these strange intruders, and I think that might be the umbrella term for all of these kinds of strange creatures that aren't supposed to be here, but seem to pop up occasionally, strange intruders. It's not just one country. It's not just one time frame, decade, era. Maybe they've always been with us. Well, and speaking of popping up, that was a good choice of words. When you take a look at these encounters and how they work, here are some of the factors that are consistent in them. One of them is that these things seem to spontaneously appear. And I say things, I mean things, because I do not think, based on the research that we've done, that they are human. And I want to make that clear from the get-go. These are not human beings. Right. Man, you really, (laughs) wait a second, you are really now into the line of thinking that these may exist, really. Well, I got to tell you, the stories, when you said last week, <laughs> yeah. when you said, hey, if you guys have any stories about black eyes, send them in. And I, at the time, I was like, all right, this is all folklore and legend. Yeah. And, you know, I wanted to believe, <laughs> sure, you know, I'm sure. Mr. X-Files. I yeah, want to believe. Yeah. But we got some emails, and I got to tell you, I'm flat out rattled by some of them, yeah. including one that just came in today and uh, three or four other ones that we've gotten They're all pretty freaky, and it's hard to imagine that everyone who's sending them in is just making it up. But maybe they are. We're a good outlet where you can get your story on our show. Lots of people are going to hear it. But I'm feeling a little bit changed about it, and I guess my opinion is if they're not real, which they may not be, maybe it is just a made-up phenomenon of some kind. 
then fine. But if they are real, I do not believe that there's a human component to them. Right, right. No, there's so many different elements to this which are interesting in the you know, analyzation of these types of things. And and one thing that I was surprised by is going back to Kelly Hopkinsville incident and two families claiming they saw aliens or goblins or some kind of goblin alien, something non-human, non-terrestrial, is that most of the prominent skeptics that we've talked to whose articles we've read generally agree that they did see something, that they were genuinely scared, they did see something weird, but they're trying to explain that with terrestrial animals, items, which explain it. And my point earlier was, like, it's almost so fantastical, then why would you believe that they actually saw anything, that maybe they're making this all up? So when I look at this phenomenon, it's weird in that they would be describing any encounter with kids. So if you start there and you analyze somebody's story that they just told you, like, I saw this teenager that, I don't know, just totally creeped me out. They looked strange. There was something off with them. They chilled me to the core. Then you're starting with, you actually saw a physical being is what I'm saying. It wasn't just an apparition, but you saw a human being type thing. So there's no start there. There's no argument there. If you're claiming that you did see a teenager or a young uh, child, okay, that's something solid, but there are elements to the story of the physical description that are strange well, and, yeah. and common. And the next question is, of course, if you accept that people that are telling the story did in fact see something from a skeptical approach and an analytical approach, the next thing you're going to say, well, it's just somebody on drugs. It comes sure. back, there's a lot in common here with Paula Pell's Devil in the Diner story, yeah. which is yeah. actually the very first interview we ever recorded, although it was like the eighth episode we released. And yeah. a lot of people, they either got it 100% or yeah. they didn't get it at all because right. it doesn't have this definitive <laughs> point of view with regard to what she saw. It's right. just a feeling. It's a gut feeling. And analytical people will say, what's a gut feeling? That's nothing. You can't prove it. You can't. Okay, fine. So maybe these are just freaky people. Maybe it's somebody who's jonesing. And right. and by the way, I got no shortage of those folks living within a few blocks of my house here. <laughs> this is Los Angeles. Sure. And that's not what's happening here. No, and no. They put you on, you were aware of them. You know what I'm saying? You're on guard is what I meant to say. It's like when you see somebody and they're kind of sketchy and just not right about them and you're with your kids and uh, you want to make sure your car doors are locked. This is probably not so much of a uh, small town problem. However, I know there's a lot of small towns out there that I'm familiar with where there are big drug problems. There's a big opioid problem. Yeah, it's a huge crisis And people will steal stuff because they're incredibly desperate. And so you get a lot of criminal sketchy behavior. But this isn't that because people who are on drugs and they want to steal your stuff or they want to borrow money from you to buy more drugs, which is their ultimate goal. Not to get a ride. Yeah. Can I get a ride somewhere? Can I just warm up for a bit because it's chilly outside? Yeah. Can I use your landline telephone? They don't want that. What they want is more drugs. Well, and that comes back around to some of the characteristics of these appearances. Like I was saying a second ago, there is the spontaneous appearance and disappearance of these things where they seem to teleport almost to the point of origin. When they knock on the door, they somehow have walked through walls, bypassed gates, bypassed locks, and also defied the amount of time it should take for a person to walk from one place to another. That's both with their appearance and their disappearance. Right. They just vanish. That's what's interesting. And to be clear, it's not like people see them materialize, like Star Trek transporter, 
Ooh. And that's not how they go away. It's like with all these things. When people say that they uh, usually do not see things materialize, it's that you turn your head and boom, they're there. Exactly. You look out your window, boom, they're there. Right. And when you look away and you look back, yeah. they're gone. And, and they yeah. haven't had time to go anywhere where they could be hidden from view. Yeah. They're not on your porch anymore. They're not in your driveway. They're not in front of your house, even though you're on a dead-end street. And yeah. believe me, we've heard some stories, and we're going to be sharing them with you in both parts of this series. These folks are flat-out disappearing. Yeah. And one of the other things that they seem to have, which is really interesting to me, is an ability to exhibit some kind of mind control. It's like in Mr. Bethel's case, he said he was reaching over to unlock the car door. It was like he didn't even know that he was doing it. And what you're going to find as you hear more stories going forward, a lot of people say that. They felt compelled to unlock the door, to open the door, to open the car door, to open the door to their house, to offer them a ride, and in some cases, even to let them in. And boy, that's really bad news. We'll talk about that later. Sure. So this mind control and this telepathic part of it, that component of it, is also pretty frightening. Well, there's two working lures here. I mean, lures by like fishing lures that seem to be employed. And folks, just go with us here. This is Halloween. It's Come Halloween. On. Believe the creepy, weirdo, Yeah, dive in part. on this one, guys, because yeah. we're just trying to have some fun here. And, and if it, you don't it, believe, it's called suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Have fun with this one, as yeah. we did, and we'll continue to do. So there's two things I want to say going on here. One, one element is that they're always young people, and they could be as young as six or seven, you know, not toddlers. No, but we do um, have one story that came in of two children appearing under mysterious circumstances where one of them did appear to be a baby in a stroller. Oh, oh yes, yes. That's, yeah. yeah. We don't know what was in the stroller. Yeah. Could be a Rosemary's baby kind of thing. But the idea is that they are ambulatory. They can walk around by themselves. But what's strange is that when they show up at your door, it's like, it's two in the morning. Where are your parents? Right. What I'm getting at is that they are... Either that young, say like six, seven to eight or nine, to their teens, 15, 16. Now, that's not the total range, but I would say, uh, as Mr. Offit says, some people report them being in their like early 20s, early to mid 20s, but still young people. And why? Because it's our natural inclination to want to help children that are seemingly in trouble. Oh my gosh, it's 11 o'clock. And what do they want? They need help contacting their parents. Right. So, what is that doing? What does that tell you about these things? I'll tell you what it tells you. It tells you that whatever is sending them is trying to trick you by sending something that you're going to feel bad for. Yeah. And that you're going to want to help and you're going to have a hard time resisting being helpful to if you're a normal person. Sure, sure. They have much better chance of success, whoever it is. And when I say they, I mean whoever's dispatching these things to your porches. <laughs> if they send some sweet little kid and like, hey, yeah. can I please use your phone? You yeah. know, yeah. and it's cold and Gold is Tiny Tim, whatever. Yeah. Like, let me in. Yeah. And it's scary. That's another thing is that often it'll be really cold weather and they are not dressed appropriately. So you wonder, why aren't you shivering? Why aren't you frozen to death now? There's a snowstorm outside. It's raining and you're just wearing a shirt. And so there's a two-pronged attack here. Yes, whatever's sending these things or these things themselves know that it's your natural inclination to help. And that's a hard thing to resist because you see a kid in trouble. But there's something physical about them that they just cannot overcome, no matter how helpless they seem to be. And so what's the second prong? It's the mental, hypnotic, trance-like thing that they put you into. We're going to go to three prongs. We're going full on. <laughs> yeah, go, we're going trident here. Prong it up, yeah. Yeah, because the other prong is that they can't enter your house or your car 
unless you invite them. Now, what right. does this sound like? Everybody's like, vampires, you're, they're screaming at their, <laughs> at their podcast. But it's vampires, and it is, yeah. there is a lot of common ground. Yes. Yes. With vampires. Now, there are no instances of physical attacks right. with these things, right. but there are physical repercussions of interaction with them. For the receiver, the host. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you just reminded me of one of my favorite rules-type stories, and perhaps your favorite subject in general, skinwalkers. Yeah. Well, the ranch anyway, the yeah. area. Favorite uh, is a, maybe not the right word. No. I, if I think about it every day, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Just occasionally, it does scare him. But we had a story that we came across about a family that were under attack, possibly, from several skinwalkers. And what they described was that they had a fence that was surrounding their property, and they noticed several of these, two or three, trying to climb the fence, but they couldn't. Yes. And the fence was like a boundary, but completely. they wanted to. They sure wanted to. Well, Those creatures yeah. wanted to come over that fence. Yeah. And it wasn't tall. It wasn't hard to cross. They just couldn't get across it. Maybe you remember, but I don't know if they had uh, protection from a uh, bruja, a witch or a local medicine woman or medicine man that they were told to recite. I'm just now recalling this. I believe they were a white family, a Howley family that were there, but the local Native Americans helped them out somehow. Yeah, the, so the big, details sorry, are sketchy. Yeah. It, from what I, what I remember, I believe it's a family that saw something out in the desert That's in right. Arizona. That's and right. then when they got home, they continued to see these things, but they couldn't get past the fence to their house. Right, right. Which so, was just like a wooden gravity fence is that you build out of wood or something. So yeah, it wasn't it was like it three, was, four feet tall. Exactly. It wasn't like it had concertina wire or razor yeah. wire around the top. It was just easily scalable. They just seemed to have trouble doing it. And that's one thing that they noticed, if you believe that story at all. So there is something to that. And when you say something about them not being able to get into your space, and it could be your car, it could be your house, your apartment. You can't hide folks. You got to live somewhere. You got to sleep somewhere. When they approach, they need your permission. And you think like, well, look, if this is a sketched out 17-year-old. He's got a knife in his pocket and he wants your cash for more meth. He's just going to barge his way in perhaps. Or why aren't these people being robbed? And when you say, well, you know, maybe some meth kids are doing that, yeah, but they're not described like this. Now, how, what do they look like, Scott? Well, the first thing that most people notice about them is the clothing. A lot of times, these things are dressed like, well, like the Unabomber. <laughs> so, some people might not remember him. That's yes. Ted Kaczynski. He's yeah. in jail now, but right. he mailed a bunch of explosive packages to people. And he always had a hoodie on because he probably figured he'd be on camera when well, he got near the mailboxes. But <laughs> that was the one, yeah, the police sketch artist. Yeah, yeah but they do have, uh, frequently they have hoodies and the hoods are pulled down over their eyes because they have something to hide there. Oh, absolutely. You know, what is the commonality with the clothing? Well, maybe think of like these other entities that don't need clothes, I guess, sludge entities. And these are the things that seem to be invading people's homes and they don't need permission. Is it perhaps because they've always been there or for some reason they're more spiritual? They can float in and out. They don't need to ask or permission, unlike these physical type creatures. So vampires and skinwalkers, wendigos, leprechauns, yeah, all these little people. What happens when they break the rules? Who's making this rule? Who well, says to them, if you go in that house without permission... I'm going to do X, Y, and Z to you. Or yeah. are they physically not capable of doing it? Or are they going to get in trouble if they do it? And if they get in trouble, what kind of trouble do you get in when you're a black-eyed kid and you break a rule? See, now we're getting into religion. So yeah. that's a whole other kettle of fish. But my view is that uh, whatever created you 
can put you away and is keeping a rein on them, allows them to do some things, but not others. Yeah, if they have rules at all, clearly they themselves have fear of a higher power of some kind. Well, that's what I'm saying. Why don't they just push past you? It's like, why don't they just stab you in the gut and ransack your house or carjack you or something? They seem to be kind of polite at first. But anyway, getting back to being physical beings and needing permission, they seem to be physical entities. So they have to wear some clothes because... (laughs) If they didn't, you might just laugh at them. Well, and they have another problem that all physical entities have sometimes from time to time. Sure, sure. They smell bad. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's that's spiritual and physical entities. There's a bad smell, a hellish smell. Sulfur from that book, what are the smells that come with these paranormal events? It's something bad. It's sulfurous. It's burning feces. In this case, it's described as a really musty, dank odor. It's not like bad B.O. or, you know, teenage hormone B.O. Yeah. It's something worse and not associated with a human being. It's more earthy. And so there's a smell. I was going back to make connections with some things that they cannot hide. They can't hide their smell. Sometimes described with really bad breath just a horrible, foul breath. And again, it's not Funyuns and Mountain Dew breath when you're on speed. Now, that does happen with people, you know, who've been on drugs for a while is that they'll start to have a chemical smell about them. That's not what's being described here. This is moldy earth kind of thing. The clothes themselves are disheveled. They're greasy, dirty, not homeless level, but there's something about them. They're not new. There's no branding on them. It's not like (laughs) you didn't just go down to TJ Maxx or Kohl's and pick out an outfit. They're very nondescript. It's like with shadow people. Why the fedora? What's up with the hat? It's covering something. Same with the hoodie. It's your only defense against cameras and if you're a bad guy. And cameras are now everywhere. Pervasive. Right. So it's a covering. It creates a shadow. How many people are actually, who are not committing a crime, are actually wearing the hood if it's not cold out? Yeah. (laughs) If it's cold out, it's windy, sure. It's creating a little bit of a mystique, some covering. But one thing that was interesting is that the people that took a good look at the clothes said that they looked homemade. They just weren't mass-marketed type of clothes. You know, again, there's no logo. It's not Nike. It's not Adidas. There's something very nondescript. They're all kind of usually dark colors, browns, grays, blacks, very drab, but again, kind of maybe a little dirty and greasy. So that generally is describing the teenagers. The small children, they're often described wearing vintage clothing, which is weird. Right. It's not from the right time period. It's not from the right time period. It's, it seems like it's maybe 30 or 40 years out of date. They look like the little rascals. Not that cute, of course. But some kind of weird vintage clothing, much like the men in black are described. It's like, we couldn't get the era right, so we're going to go with 50s. Yeah. Thin black ties, black suits, black hats. Actually... Black Cadillac. Yes, that's it. Black Cadillac. Black Cadillac. Uh, So uh, rancid, time bomb. Very good. Yeah. So they don't really care that much, but they got to be dressed some, you know, in some kind of garb, and that's close enough from like maybe the fifties. But it also tells you that whoever, again, getting back to the great dispatcher of black-eyed kids, the the (laughs) Louis De Palma, or whoever it is, the artful Dodger. Yeah, he doesn't have good information. It (laughs) doesn't have good information about what is going to work. It's like when Spock goes down to the planet and. They got to dig out some clothes, you know, they got to hide his ears, whatever. And it's kind of weird looking. Or Marty McFly in his life vest jacket. That's always the trope. It's just not working. Right. It's not working. You look sort of out of place, but they're in the ballpark. But that's often described with these strange visitors. They don't understand time. It's like Indrid Cold. What time is it? 
What yeah. do you call that? The bunch of lights down there. Oh, yeah. Now, it's like an I, unfrozen caveman lawyer, too. <laughs> exactly. I don't know how your son worked here or how you, your legal system. At least he's friendly. You're trying to get an approximation well, of like, what time is this? He grins a lot. Well, I don't know if that's he's, fully friendly. He's trying. <laughs> These kids do not grin, yeah. by the way. They no. are emotionless, expressionless. Until they get angry. Yeah. But here's the thing. Indrid Cold, snappily dressed. He's got some kind of metallic, really cool yeah, outfit true. on, really cool jacket. These kids are not cool. They look nondescript. That's, I think, their idea, is that we're not trying to raise or ring any alarms here. We're trying to fit in as best we can, but we ain't making it. So that's a description of them clothes-wise. And for skin, it's, they're not like meth heads where they're covered in sores, but they do look very pale, Again, the hair is greasy. I think Brian Bethel said they, the one kid seemed to have red hair with freckles, maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, and a paler skin, and the other one had olive skin. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So they're Italian. <laughs> some and some are Irish. Yeah, some are yeah. Irish. It's, that's it, we solved it. The black-eyed yeah. kids, there's always an Italian one and, a, and an Irish <laughs> an one. An Irish kid with them. <laughs> there's something about it, but you could say like, well, look, that sounds very human. So obviously there's just kids playing a prank on these people, and it's just a current running thing. Out of all these physical traits, there's something that's undeniable about them, and it is the most disturbing, haunting, and identifiable feature. And what is that, Scott? Their eyes. Yes. Something they cannot hide. As the title suggests, these kids have black eyes. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the iris, the whole sclera. So the whole eye is black. Yep. From corner to corner. And generally shiny like obsidian, like polished black glass. Right. And it's not just that, though, because what we're getting at here is that if a couple of kids showed up at your door and they had all black contacts, and that's certainly one of the explanations to try and debunk this, is that, well, these, these kids that have these total sclera contacts, which you can get. Which, by the way, are $400 a pair and on movie sets are generally installed by a clinician. Yeah, they're very uncomfortable from what I hear. If you read any interviews or listen to an interview with an actor who's had to wear them because they are available. It's really uncomfortable. Also, you get kind of a tunnel vision with them and they're expensive and generally not something you just wet your fingers with some solution and pop them in yourself. They're kind of hard to put in and they're hard to take out. So it's very strange that it's an expensive prank that these kids are going out stealing their parents' credit cards to buy these things and going out to scare people with. So there's something else about these kids that's deep down, even before you see their eyes, as people have described. It's a deep down, sinister, bad, bad feeling. Very bad feeling. And in addition to the craziness with their eyes, they don't talk like a child should talk either. Yeah. Their speech and diction is very sophisticated. And it's one of the things that Bethel talked about with, with regard to his story. When you see him interviewed or he talks about the case further, he makes it clear, even at that point in the earlier stages of his career, he had interviewed countless children. Mm -hmm. And kids, for those of you out there that have them, we know we have all different types of people in our audience, but, you know, I have a kid, he's eight years old. They don't stand still on your porch. <laughs> <laughs> or anywhere. And talk yeah. perfectly. Right. They shuffle, they move back and forth. It's just not what they do. And one of the things that's been described repeatedly is just how well-spoken they are and how direct they are and how they're not moving really at all. They're just no, standing no. there. Yeah, and it's flat, monotone speech. It's not conversive. It's not like a little kid like, I'm lost and I don't know how to find my mom. Can you help me? Yeah. It's demanding. It's, I need to use your phone. You have to let me in. And on top of that, 
they seem to ask for really weird stuff sometimes. Oh, well, we're going to get to the story later, but they ask for these strange things that seem to not make sense. One of my favorites, though, especially talking about being out of place and out of time, what's one of the requests they asked for? There was a story of some black-eyed kids that came to a door and asked if they could use the telegraph. <laughs> so I, said, I must warn people of General Sherman's advance. Yeah. Like, no, no, they don't get the time frame right. Yeah, they, again, they've got really bad information. Whoever's <laughs> sending them out, it's the worst dispatcher of all time. Yeah. They got the clothes wrong, they got the words wrong. There's all kinds of things that aren't working right, and now they're showing up at your door asking to use a telegraph. And that particular case was in recent history. And how many kids, young kids, even know what a telegraph is if oh, they yeah. haven't gotten to that point in their history classes. Right, you know? right. It's just a weird thing. And again, not a very funny prank, if that's what your goal is. Just a very odd thing to ask for. But to their mind, if you're thinking of a logical reason, I need to come inside because that's where the telegraph, da, 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 you know, that's where you keep it. And you can't just hand it to me. I need to come inside to use it. So that's the point. But again, it doesn't all hinge on uh, you actually having a telegraph it's really an excuse to come inside because that's the ultimate goal. Well, that's the first step to the ultimate goal is to get into your space with your permission. And it begs the question, why are they confused about time and time periods? Right. right. Why are they asking for things that are anachronistic from the moment that they're in? Yeah. Why is their command of the language so poor? Why are they so seemingly confused? And why do they need to come inside so bad? We'll get to that because we have some theories, but the verbal thing, that's kind of a formality. Let's get that out of the way. I have to speak something to you because as most all of these stories, and that's another common element to all of these stories, there is a hypnotic, forceful, suggestive action going on. You feel yourself wanting to let these kids in because again, it's that nurturing feeling of like, well, it's really cold outside. I should let them warm up for a bit and they can use the phone or at least use my cell phone. Why don't you come inside? But usually something snaps people back into uh, common sense here, I guess. And a lot of times that's the eyes again. So I just want to put forth a quick hypothesis here on the eyes, because usually that's the one thing that snaps people back into it. They stare into their eyes and like, well, nobody has all black eyes. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. Something is wrong here. And so something that was really interesting that you brought up is that there's always something about the eyes with all these creatures, Mothman and getting actinic conjunctivitis, the red glowing eyes. I've now heard hundreds of these stories, and that seems to come up all the time. What is it about the eyes? What is it about these red glowing eyes that is so common to all these creatures, either fiery orange or fiery red, blood red? There's something about that. My hypothesis is that what you're seeing with the black shiny covering is that that is trying to be covered up somehow. Because another thing that you mentioned was that some people have described them changing, right? Yes. Different colors? Yeah. Well, people have thought that the eyes were normal, at least up until about halfway through the encounter. Right. And then suddenly they either realize that they are solid black or they have witnessed them turning black Ugh. in front of them. Yeah, jeez. And so then this begs the question, were they always black and your senses and perception are being controlled? Right. Or they're wearing off. Yeah, maybe or they're seeing, wearing off. trying to see them for what they really are. Maybe they're unable to project what they want you to see through your own eyes for more than a certain amount of time. Well, as they say, Scott, the eyes are the window to the soul. And what if your windows to the soul go right to hell? 
And that's what you're seeing with the fiery redness. That can't be totally covered up for too long, but people notice that something is not right here. And uh, if you're going to break this down as being a real thing, then maybe, again, the eyes are being covered to, as to what they really are. You're not seeing them for what they really are. This is just a visage. That doesn't make you run screaming at the very first sight of them, but you will at some point. And the last component part of these interactions is their behavior. And this is significant too, and it's fairly consistent across all these stories. They start out very non-aggressive. Yeah, sure, it's weird, and it makes you feel weird, and it's scary, and it will put you off the feed, but they're not aggressive at first. No, no, they're kind of polite. They're kind of polite, but then they keep asking and asking and asking, and if they're not getting what they want, then they get angrier and angrier. In some cases, pounding on doors, screaming for over an hour. Yeah, yeah. However, the flip side of this is if you just hold your ground, yeah. you don't open the door, you don't let them in, they go away. Yeah, they vanish. Yeah. So as much as you feel like you should let them in because they're cold kids and they just want to use the phone, they don't really want anything else from you, or maybe just a ride, the point is you don't do it. Don't open the door. Don't let them in. Have you ever used one of those apps where you just plug in your numbers or info and it figures everything out for you? It's like one of those tax programs. Oh, yeah. I love that. You don't have to have a pen or a notebook on the side to crunch all that information and hope you get it right because the program does it all for you. Right. Well, if you're looking for life insurance, health insurance, pet insurance, or to insure your income should you get hurt and can't work, that's exactly what PolicyGenius.com does for you. You just plug in your information, and in five minutes, you've applied for a quote for just the insurance you need and nothing more, and it's at the best price. As we've all been reminded recently, and always really, life can be very unpredictable and harsh, and you need to be prepared for whatever it throws at you. And you mentioning the possibility of getting injured and not being able to work, then saddled with a mountain of medical bills or worse, is a big one that many people just don't want to think about, or they think it'll never happen to them. But here's a fact worth considering. Almost half of all U.S. families would have trouble covering an emergency expense in excess of $400. And then imagine if the primary earner died. Once again, a memento mori, a reminder that we all go sometime. So do the right thing while you can, which is to make sure your loved ones are taken care of when that day does come. Most people think life insurance costs two to three times more than it actually does, and that's just not the case. So PolicyGenius.com's simple, user-friendly website makes it not only easy to find the right policy for you, but if you need help or have questions, they have a team of real, licensed customer service experts waiting to talk you through it. So if you've been putting off life insurance or want to make sure the insurance you have is right for you, check out PolicyGenius.com today. You can save up to 40% just by comparing policies. The quotes are free, there's no sales pressure, and zero hassle. PolicyGenius.com. It's life insurance for the 21st century. This is Ron Burnson from Anchorage, Alaska. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. So we alluded to this a few minutes ago, but I'm sure a lot of you are wondering, what happens when you do let them in? First of all, don't let them in. (laughs) (laughs) Rule number one. Step two, refer to rule number one. Yeah. Yeah. Do not let them in. Because when you do, you get sick and you might even die. 
So here's a story that's pretty fascinating. There's a lot of weird elements about it. The bicycle strikes me as strange, which you're going to hear. It's a prop, but we just received a story tonight as we're recording that sometimes props are utilized all in an effort to say, look how normal I am. Yeah, we had a listener write in with a story uh, where with a skateboard, where the kid had a skateboard. So yeah. we're going to try and get an interview with her for part two. But right now, we want you to just sit back and take a listen to this story about a couple of kids that came to somebody's front door and what they wound up saying to the residents of the house was extremely chilling. One morning during breakfast, there was a knock on the door. I opened it to find two boys, around 10 to 12, standing on my porch. The taller boy had knocked. The smaller had been straddling a bike. I found this odd that he was on my porch on his bike. He would have had to carry it up my front steps, and instead of standing beside it, was sitting on it. Still, kids are kids, right? At first, they kept their heads down, and I asked if I could help them. Uh, can I help you? They said they just needed to come in for a minute, and it wouldn't take long. Can we come in for a minute? It won't take long. I asked if they were from the neighborhood, and they didn't answer. You boys from the neighborhood? Or? It was about this time that I realized something wasn't right. I told them that I wasn't comfortable letting them into our house. I, I don't know. I'm not really comfortable with that. There'd been a number of home invasions, and both my wife and I were wary of strangers. They didn't say anything else. However, the strange stuff started happening after they left. I kept having recurring nightmares about their visit, which would wake me up in the middle of the night. I completely lost my appetite, and I didn't want to leave my house. Then they visited me again. It was morning, during breakfast, and my wife heard someone knock on the door. She went to answer it and saw the boys I had mentioned standing there, waiting for her. They stood and stared at her, and she stared back. He will die, one of them said. He will die soon. My wife told them to get the hell off our property, the and they just smiled at her. Let us in to use the phone. My wife said that she had never been so scared in her life. She just stepped back, closed the door, and turned around. She came back into the kitchen and asked me if I'd heard them. Did you hear them? I told her I hadn't. I, I had thought she was in the bedroom. I kept feeling awful, and about a week after that incident, I went to see my doctor. He then sent me to a doctor for tests. They found that I had a tumor. They operated, and I survived. But I believe it was caused by those damn kids. I think that they are demonic. They are also telepathic, as during my encounter I had thought, what's happening here? The taller boy looked at me with those black eyes and said directly into my head, You know he isn't real, don't you? What you're seeing here with all of these stories, I hope, is that there is some commonalities with all of them. Variations with each story, of course, with uh, ones in the U.S., ones overseas in Europe and uh, Australia. It's all over the world, but there's variations. But what we always look for here are the patterns because everything's connected. So here we have a little bit of prescience predicting the future. Somebody or some kid knowing about someone's condition that they couldn't possibly know about. And I know it's pretty broad. Some Yeah, but what you're saying, you're saying the condition was pre-existing. And what the family was implying to me and yeah. what he said was that they caused it. Well, it's predicting the future then, yeah. which is like Kate, knowing something's going to happen to you. But Kate not just the, knowing it's going to happen, yeah. making it happen. Well, <laughs> yeah, there's several different variations here, but either causing it to happen 
or knowing it's going to happen and come on. I mean, there's two different things, but just knowing that is strange. Now, one of the lists you'll find on the, on the internet is about all the creepy, strange things people's children have told them. And I remember one, one dad saying, like, he's reading to his son, and the son's saying, you're going to die soon. That's not what you want to hear from your kids. Yeah. Because they might be joking. Maybe they heard it at school. They heard it on TV. But when your son points at you with a blank face and says, you're going to die soon, it's like, no, 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 no. So when it's a strange kid, though, I mean, kids say strange things. We know that. But when it's a kid that comes to your door and says that and they don't know you, it's like, well, I mean, maybe he's playing a prank on me. It's a weird prank. Maybe he's harassing me. It's a strange thing to say. At the top of the show, you might have heard me say a phrase called creepy pasta. Did I? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was talking to the listeners. <laughs> I thought you were ordering dinner. A lot of people already know what creepy pasta is, but yeah. for those that don't, we did want to explain it. It's a term that you hear on the internet quite a bit, and it's fascinating how it evolved. Well, it's like an internet tulpa. It kind of is, yeah, in a way. Yeah. It's self-created and self-propagated. Here's a thing that I didn't realize, which maybe a lot of you did, but I thought was fascinating, is that the origin, it's a portmanteau. It's a combination of words that were modified and made into other words, and it started out as copy and paste. And yeah. this is why a lot of people think that the Black Eyed Kids story is just something that's been copied and pasted and shared over and over, or right. variations of it have been on lots of different forums. And the way that it started out was like people would see these scary stories online, and then they would copy and paste them to other forums before these forums got really evolved. Now there's a lot of websites where you can just go and read this stuff. There's creepypasta.com, creepypasta.org. There's the No Sleep subreddit, which is really great. There's a lot of great stories there. But the thing about this is most of this stuff has a very distinct feeling of fictionality. To interject, to me, what sets the alarm bells going is that it's too good. Yeah. The whole thing about the blurry photos. It's like, it's too blurry, it's fake. It's too crisp, it's fake. Yeah, a little shout out to our friends over there at that show. blurry photos, yes. (laughs) It's a great podcast. uh, Gentlemen, yeah. (laughs) uh, uh, yeah. There's something about the stories that are fictional. Dear David. Why don't you tell our listeners what you mean by that? Okay. Well, I don't want to bag on it because a lot of people do believe in it and they're very entertained. And some, most, I think people say like, well, you know what? Even if it is fake, it's very entertaining. That's going to be the story that's been on Twitter. Right. By a Twitter user named Moby Dickhead. <laughs> and uh, by the way, I reached out to him and asked him if he wanted to do an interview. And I think he said yes. He wrote back and said he would. Yeah. And yeah. the further the story went... The more the red flags came up for both you and me about the authenticity of it, the less interested I became in doing the interview. I have respect for him. I'm not disrespecting him. I think his story is interesting, fascinating, but it had a lot of tropes in it that are kind of red flags for made-up material. Maybe you're impinging on the rules, my fake made-up rules. (laughs) But when you see a story that has elements to it that sound too much like a children's Bloody Mary, the Candyman, say the name twice. Or I love Rich Haddam's joke. It's like Bloody Mary is staring back from the mirror at a bar overlooking a couple of patrons ordering drinks. And it's like the first guy says, I'll have a Bloody Mary. The second guy, like, I'll have a Bloody Mary. And she's like, yes, yes, come on, one more. And the third guy says, I'll have what they're having. (laughs) I I love retelling that joke. But you can read all about it. And it's actually a fun read. It's enjoyable. I see why people like it. It's been unfolding on Twitter, I believe, mostly. Yes. And now, of course, on Facebook and all the other social media platforms. But the central premise is that uh, this guy's apartment is haunted. The ghost has these rules. A small 
child who's been accidentally killed by something falling on his head. And you can ask him two questions, but if you ask a third, he comes and kills you. Yeah. And so that's what this guy is worried about. There's poltergeist activities, kind of ghostly things. There's right, photos. he's posting all these pictures yeah. and a couple of videos. And uh, by the way, he's a writer for BuzzFeed. <laughs> Which should tell you something. A lot yeah, of people have commented I mean, on that. experts in uh, viral media. Right. So, and, and same I, thing with that school in Ireland, by the way. Yes, we saw oh, it. Oh, possibly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, again, it's entertaining. I love watching it. And I'm going to reserve judgment. Well, the biggest thing for me about the school in Ireland, which the video is very cool. I love it. It's the sure. lockers rocking and the sign flies up. There's two things I want to say very quickly about yeah, it. We yeah. don't want to get too far off topic no, here. No. One is there is nothing easier to do than create a special effect in a shot that's locked off. Mm. When the camera is sitting perfectly still, sure. you can do all kinds of things. As long as the light stays the same, you can composite in and out. You could practically do it on your iPhone these yeah, days. Yeah. Actually, I think you can. Two ninety nine. Yeah. And then the other giveaway is if you go to that school's Facebook page, there's a lot of threads about it, mostly about how excited they are about how viral it's gone. And then all the comments from the people that are attending the school and the principal or whatever are very cheeky. There yeah, is no, we've got a problem. There's nothing serious about it. <laughs> Who are you going to call? Yeah, I think yeah. they're playing everyone. It was on the Today Show. So, oh, well, uh, there you, you know, go. Well, impressive. again, if it is real, it's one of the best uh, poltergeist-type pieces of footage I've ever seen. I so. still want to get to the bottom of the one we saw a few years ago that was in the house. It was yeah. a little cottage out in yeah. the oh, countryside, yeah, yeah. like in, in, Cork, in Cork or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I did reach out to those people. They didn't get back to us with them. But the Dear David guy has at least set that up. Again, if it leads to, you know, Halloween is still coming up, folks. If it leads to a big reveal, well, then we've all had a good laugh. It's been entertaining. So I wanted to know what our friend of the show and personal friend of mine now, uh, we've gotten to know each other a little bit through emails back and forth. We actually met her in Michigan, author and paranormal researcher and intuitive Debbie Chestnut thought about it because this is her milieu. Yeah. And now I turn people on when they say like, hey, I've had some weird stuff going on. What's going on at my house? Is it a faulty electricity? Is it paranormal poltergeist activity? what's going on, I turn them on to her books because she's pretty level-headed and even keeled about this kind of stuff. She yeah. says, hey, it, it could be faulty wiring. Not everything's a ghost. No, we had a lot of fun with her. We had dinner with her when we did our show in Detroit. And, yeah, uh, yeah. She's a fun person to hang out with. Yeah, so we'll, we'll link to some of her books on our webpage. But I wanted to know what she thought of this. And she's like, again, possibly because she's very intuitive about this stuff. She's saying, well, you know what? It kind of reminds me when people are really desperate and they need help and they reach out to me with a story about some activity going on in their house. But then I start to read other things about the story that seem kind of made up. And it's like they're trying to embellish it to get me to believe in it because the story alone, sure, it's frightening if you're there. When you're telling somebody about it later, they're like, eh, you know, what? Some books flew off the shelf at you. Maybe that was just a small earthquake or gravity or they were already leaning. They don't get it. So you try to convince them with even more fantastical details that are more story, lore, folktale based. The buttons on them, like, you know, ask Dear David a third question and you die. Well, yeah. that sounds like the one sheet for every creepy horror movie that's coming out. Right. Yeah. So I asked her and she said, well, that's kind of what it's sounding like to me. So I would reserve judgment. Now, she did say 
possibly there is some kind of spiritual activity going on there. Yeah. But you're building a story around it. Anyway, so getting back to creepypasta, some of these people may have had something strange happen to them that they're building stories around. Right. And as we said, it started out as copying and pasting. And like I said, it's a portmanteau, which is a combination of words, too. Like motel was motor and hotel. Yeah. Or brunch. Well, everybody knows what brunch does. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, it, but creepypasta, yeah. it was copy and paste. And then I guess it went on to uh, the 4chan website as copy pasta, apparently sometime in 2006. 4chan is, uh, well, it's a little bit indescribable. Yeah, uh, Don't go there. Anyway, no. <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah. it, it appeared on 4chan as right. copy pasta. And this is according to the Wikipedia entry on Creepypasta, which knowing 4chan, they may have just changed it to say that they were responsible for it. So sure. I, I don't stand by the veracity of this claim. But eventually the term morphed into Creepypasta. And that came from copy and paste. So it's what you can you can see how it's happening. What's happening is these people are taking these stories and they they change them, they embellish them, they pretend they're real. There's some debate as to whether or not the Black Eyed Kids stories started out that way, and they certainly did. They certainly were sure. shared yeah. all over the internet. Of course. Did it start there? Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Yeah. For example, one thing that was created as a creepy pasta, and we know this for a fact, was Slenderman. And that was something that was done. It was a character submitted for a Photoshop contest in 2009 on the website Something Awful. And it was submitted by a user who I think at the time went by Victor Surge, but his real name is Eric Knudsen. And he's well known now. Slender Man was just something that he made up. And if you look at it, it's, it looks a lot like Pumpkin Jack from yeah, a little bit. The Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas. Right. I think he even said that he took his some of the origins from there, but I'm not sure. Don't hold me to that. But the spindly arms and legs. Yeah, very tall and, and thin. And the suit. But here's the thing about Slenderman. He wasn't real, but a lot of kids started committing crimes in Slenderman's name, uh, including few. arson. There were attacks on parents. And then on May 31st of 2014, two 12-year-old girls lured a friend of theirs into the woods and stabbed her. 19 times in the name of Slenderman. So the only upside to that story is that the victim survived. And mental illness is the primary problem there. Yes. But it was an interesting transition for this thing that was created from a creepypasta kind of idea that became something that these children got interested in, and, and one of them used it as an excuse to hurt somebody. But here's something fascinating about Slenderman, who is not real. I want to make that clear. Slenderman is not real. But here's something interesting about the idea of Slenderman and the idea of that kind of character as a spiritual being. In May of 2015, journalist Julie Bossman noted in a story about suicides on an Indian reservation that the president of the Oglala Sioux tribe pointed out that many Native Americans believe in a suicide spirit similar to the Slenderman. And my point there is not to say, oh, Slenderman is the suicide. It's none of that. I'm not talking right, about suicide. Right. What I'm talking about is the pervasiveness of that particular archetype, of oh, that sure. character, which yeah. is fascinating. And then you think about how that all ties together, and you think about the black-eyed kids. There's a lot of archetypical things about the black-eyed kids with the black yeah. eyes, no soul. There's vampire rules. Can't come in unless they're invited, all this stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, and this might not have even been the right episode for us to bring up the difference between the Dear David stories or or the ones that are so slick that you know they're fictional because a lot of these Black Eyed Kid stories do feel that way. A lot of the ones that you read, you're just like, this is <laughs> somebody is trying to entertain themselves yeah. and us by posting this on the internet. Well, here's the thing. I'm just going to say this here before I forget it. 
This is one thing that author Jason Offit was telling his students back when he was teaching a journalism class that was based on more paranormal stories and, and gathering them. And he said, okay, your assignment once a week, got to come in with some kind of paranormal story. And the kids were saying like, that's incredible. No, we can't do that. It's impossible. There aren't that many stories out there. And he's like, you know why you think that? Because you're not asking anybody. Go ask some friends, relatives, people you trust. That's the thing about a journalist. You go ask questions. You'll be surprised. And what happened is that they said, God, you're right. We went and asked friends of ours and people we knew, and everybody's got a story, or they know somebody who's got a story. And we said that early on when we first started this podcast. That's part of the reasons that we became interested in this. So that's part of it. When you think about that chicken and egg thing we always say, these tropes, these common threads of uh, the rules of three, is that taken from folklore purely? Or does folklore take that from real experiences? And over the time, they blend together, which is kind of what happened with Slenderman in a way, because if you were the person getting stabbed, the evil that Slender Man is putting out in the world seems pretty real to you right then. Yeah. I don't care if it's real or not. I'm seeing evil being inflicted upon me. And those people who believed in that made it real. And I do want to say one thing here, folks. If that's your idea, if you're kind of mentally imbalanced, that you're going to now pledge allegiance to some demonic kind of thing, thinking that's going to help you. Well, I can only tell you what I would think if I was that demon. You're the first person I'm going to punish. Why? Because that's what I do. I'm a demon. I'm a trickster. I got you to do all these things, and the joke's on you. Yeah. I don't think that you're going to get any reward anywhere else in any other world, so just don't do it. Right, so coming back around to the Black Eyed Kids and whether or not they're just a creepy pasta, whether or not they were just something invented in the late 90s that got propagated all over the internet, and now everyone's talking about it and there's nothing to it, you have to wonder a few things. The first thing is... Is there nothing to keep these things in check? The universe has a balance, right? If the black-eyed kids so. are real, sure. there's good and evil, where's the good that keeps black-eyed kids in check? Maybe that's just the rules. Maybe that's the rule that they can't come in the house. That's the good. Yeah. If you can resist giving in to them, you'll be protected. Right. Well, some of these black-eyed kids stories, turns out they have positive forces in them. But the positive forces in the story are just as creepy as the black-eyed kids. Right now, we're going to take a listen to one of the anecdotes from Gary Michael Vasey's book. He gave us permission to read some of these and share them with listeners. So check this out. This account of the Black Eyed Kids is a little unusual. My experience took place several months ago in Kansas. I have been reading the other accounts on your site and wanted to share my story here. Looking back, the most bizarre thing about my experience was how quickly they showed up. I walked in the porch, turned around to lock it, then turned back. And there was a knock. More than anything else about this story, that freaks me out. It's not something I've seen in other accounts that I've read. I turned around and saw them. Two kids. One was in his early teens. The other one looked about 11. The older one was knocking. He looked panicked, and he was really pounding on the door. The younger one looked emotionless and didn't say anything. We have to use your phone. I felt my hand moving forward towards the doorknob, but then I yanked it back. I don't know if I need to explain that I wanted to help them, but also felt afraid of them. But I did. It's in all the encounters, so I'm just confirming that yes, it happened to me too. These kids absolutely strike fear into your heart. It's always seemed strange to me that no one who's ever encountered the black-eyed kids has ever heard of them before. 
I had at least read a few paranormal websites, and I knew of a few of the stories people had told. I think that's why it was like a reflex when I heard a request to use the phone. My eyes went to theirs, and I saw that they were solid black, and I knew what these kids were. The older kids seemed to immediately realize what I'd seen. I've heard that they usually get mad if you see their eyes. That didn't happen this time, though. His eyes got a look of desperation. I swear to God, I won't hurt you. You can trust us. That's something I've never seen reported before. I ran to get my shotgun. I wasn't going to just stand there and listen to them begging to get in for the next hour. When I came back with the gun, though, they were already gone. In their place was a young girl. Her hair was very light. I remember it as white. She wasn't trying to get in. In fact, she was looking away. I pointed the gun at her anyway. You get the hell out of here! You don't need to do that. I don't even want to get in. I lowered my gun involuntarily. This girl freaked me out far more than the boys did. But I was powerless to disobey her. She had power. There were some boys that came by and asked to come into your house. Is that correct? Yes. I hoped that being honest with her would get her to go away as soon as possible. How long ago did they leave? Just now. I was going to get my gun for them. When I came back, you were here. Excellent. Then they should still be close. Don't worry, you won't be seeing them again. She turned to me briefly, and I caught a glimpse of her face. I looked at the eyes, expecting them to be black again. Instead, I saw they were pure white. No irises and no pupils, just pure white pools in her face that seemed to glow slightly in the darkness. She turned and walked away, and I realized something. I believed her. I fully expected that I would have never seen those boys again. Submitted by B.I. So that's pretty interesting, right? <laughs> so there's an adjustment bureau. Yeah, we have a new player in the game. <laughs> and this thing, I'm going to say thing, even though it looks sure. like a little girl. Sure. It seemed to have a sort of creepy, omniscient quality to it. And it came along after the Black Eyed Kids. And this isn't the only story like that. I mean, no, we, no. There are several others. And there's a whole series of stories, too, connected to this phenomenon that are loosely connected to both shadow people and men in black. Adults, rather. So we're saving that for part two. But in this case, this is an example of this child, this counterforce, showing up and trying to put the victim's mind at ease that, you know what, this is taken care of. Sorry yeah. they bothered you. It reminds me of when Indrid Cold was talking to... Who Woody was Derenberg. It? Was it Woody about his yeah. socks getting stolen and his shoes? And he's like, oh, we're going to take care of that because these other guys were showing up and harassing people that were also from another world. Ah, right. And then, lo and behold, a few days later, the guy's shoes, I think it was Woody now, but I can't remember, turned up shined yeah. with the socks like... <laughs> well, that's what rolled you know, up in the yeah, baseball. Yeah. That's very pleasant. So, yeah. yeah, your stuff's taken by an alien. I'll get it back for you. <laughs> well, yeah, that there's some kind of police force. Not so much like Men in Black, I guess. I mean, that, that is the concept with them. But it goes to the philosophical idea that I like. You can't have just all negative evil. Because evil is self-destructive, and it will eventually collapse in on itself. Just imagine a planet. You know what? This concept actually came up with Orfeo Angelucci. 
about the Luciferians once being good and now they're bad. And it's like, imagine it this way. If you had a planet where everyone was evil and it was just, you know, it's robbery and murder and we're taking from each other and basically nobody cares about anybody else. Well, you're going to end up with one person because they're all going to be suspicious of each other, stabbing each other in the back or just mass murder. And then you're going to have one person left. So that's what they mean by being self-destructive. So there's a balancing force. There are these not-so-nice, somewhat negative or completely negative evil forces out, and there are good forces keeping them in check. I love that idea. You know, lots of fans write in with show topic suggestions, and we love that. Many of the subjects are already in our mysterious and bottomless story folder, and some aren't, but we add them. But here's the thing. This list is long. So what I'm saying is if you have a favorite subject and you haven't heard it on our show... It might be a while, but we'll get to it eventually. Take, for example, the story of Lisa Lamb. Lots of people have suggested we cover it, but in the meantime, if you want to hear a really good take on that story right away, or a good take on a bunch of other topics like the ones we cover here, we think you're really going to dig Dan Cummins' Time Suck podcast. Yeah, I've gotten to know Dan fairly well, and I think he does a great job on each of his subjects, which are in the same ballpark as stuff we cover. And he does his homework with in-depth research and solid analysis, and I think he's pretty even-keeled and sensible with his conclusions. I listened to his coverage on Elisa Lamb's tragic story, and I think he did it justice. And his episode on the Salem Witch Trials helped provide some background knowledge for our own Bell Witch story. Dan's other day job is being a successful touring stand-up comedian, so he puts a little bit of humor into the stories, but respectfully and just the right amount. And yeah, he does work a little blue, which means there's some swearing from time to time. <laughs> I think most all the topics he covers are his latest listener suggestions, so every Monday at noon Pacific Standard Time when his show drops, you'll get to hear the subjects that have the zeitgeist buzzing. His next show should be on the Amityville Horror House, so it's right in time for Halloween. If you need a fix on a strange story, true crime, historical, or paranormal topic, go check out Dan Cummins' Time Suck podcast, available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, various podcast apps, or wherever you get your podcasts. And then check out his website, timesuckpodcast, all one word, dot com. There's a lot of great stuff there, too. Forrest and Scott, thank you. For supporting their sponsors. I'm Max. Now, back to the show. So there's a lot of skeptics and investigators alike that agree that Brian's story is the origin story, as we said. That's where the Black Eyed Kids started. It's one of the first in writing of some form. It is, as far as we know. I would say contemporary, modern, within the last 25 years kind of thing. But sometimes, you know what you have to do, Forrest? Go back to the history books? Well, you gotta get out that old haunted onion. <laughs> you gotta peel the uh, layers yes. back. I see. And go deeper and deeper. I'm not talking about the blooming onion. Don't get that, by the way. It really? Has, it has repercussions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Just put a lot of ranch on it. Yeah. That no, makes it worse. Okay. Seriously, the question is, is Brian Bethel's story from 1996 the first significant story of a black-eyed kid? All right. Well, you know where we are now, Scott. This is a scene in every kind of spooky movie where you're trying to nail down some paranormal or something strange. It's the scene where you have to go ask the expert, or you go to the library. Yeah. Mothman. Rich Haddam had uh, Richard Gere go ask Professor, Professor Leek. Leek. 
Yes. Which was an anagram for John Keel. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Played by the brilliant Alan Bates. Yes. But, or if the hero is alone, they check out a stack of books. They're there late at night. Thumbing through the pages. Exactly. Morgan Freeman and Seven, you know, yeah. is it, they're all the they movies They drop have a this. book and the librarian goes, shh. Yeah. But it opens to the page. Yeah. And it's the moment you realize this is nothing new. It's been going on since the dawn of time. In 1982, there was a sighting of a black-eyed kid in the United Kingdom, this is 82, 14 years prior to Brian Bethel's story. And in that case, there was even a police manhunt for the child. That story apparently was picked up by several other national UK media outlets. And according to Vasey, pretty soon people were reporting black-eyed kid ghosts all around the UK. So not only is that predating Bethel's story, that is taking place in the United Kingdom and right. not the United States. Mm-hmm. 1974, France. Two men driving their car came across five small figures by a house in the country, standing huddled together in a group. The men stopped the car and wound down the window to get a closer look at these strange creatures. Their blood ran cold at what they saw. The creatures were humanoid, but small, with long, dark, dank hair. Their eyes set in a yellowish skin were as black as coal. One of the creatures indicated to the men to come closer, but they were beset with an overwhelming fear and sped off in total fright. That's France, 1974. This next story takes us back to 1950, and it's been published in a lot of places, but I'm going to read an account of it from black-eyed children expert David Weatherly, who has a book out called The Black-Eyed Children, and it has a foreword by Nick Redfern, who is a prominent researcher in these areas. You'll find him all over the internet, and uh, he's a major contributor to lots of different blogs about the kind of stuff that we talk about all the time. This is an excerpt from David Weatherly's book containing Harold's story. This family and many of its members have lived in rural Virginia for generations. They are farmers and fishermen, hardworking country people, what most would call salt of the earth. A now deceased relative named Harold grew up in this area in the 1950s. He lived in the region most of his life and always called the area home. When he was 16 years old, Harold encountered a strange child. No one could ever explain where the boy had come from, nor was he ever seen in the area again. Harold was walking home early one evening, just before sundown. He was taking his time, strolling along the dirt road when he reached the fence line that led to his family's home. There, Leaning against the corner fence post was a young boy of about 10 to 12 years of age. Harold slowed down even more. He was puzzled since he knew everyone in the small community, yet he'd never seen this boy before. Harold had a good-natured manner and would talk to anyone about anything. When he reached the boy, he simply started talking to him. The boy didn't respond. He just stood leaning against the post, looking slightly down toward the ground. Receiving no response, Harold wondered if something was wrong with the boy. He stopped talking for a moment before leaning closer. Hey, you all right? Harold asked. With this, the boy finally spoke. His reply was rather blunt. I want to go to your house. Take me to your house. Harold felt a strange chill at the boy's response. He wasn't sure what to say. He couldn't understand why a boy he didn't know was asking to go to his house. At that moment, the young boy looked up directly at Harold. It was then that Harold realized that the boy's eyes were solid black. 
there was not a speck of white showing in those eyes. Harold began to feel very afraid. He looked up the drive towards his house. He felt rooted to the spot for some reason, but his thoughts were focused on how fast he could run to his home. Harold's thoughts produced a further comment from the strange young boy. He scowled at Harold and said coldly, Now don't you run away from me. You're going to walk me to your house. While the comet seemed like a threat, it was the final straw for Harold. He launched into a mad dash up the drive toward his house. He was running as hard as he could and didn't look back for fear that the weird child was following him. Partway up the drive, Harold heard a strange call behind him. It sounded like the scream of a bobcat. Of course, this screeching sound only served to help Harold's legs move faster in his rush to reach his home. I think I must have really angered that boy, Harold later commented. He screamed out and I thought sure he was coming to get me. Once safely in the house, Harold slammed the door behind him. His parents, seeing him so out of breath, asked what was wrong. Harold told them about his encounter with the creepy boy. Thinking he would get to the bottom of it, Harold's father promptly walked down the driveway with a shotgun in hand. He found no sign of the boy his son had described. Harold's parents listened to their son recount the story a second time, asking a few questions along the way. Since their son was never one to make up stories, Harold's parents believed his tale. The boy insisted that the child he encountered was solid and could not have been a ghost. Harold's father simply wasn't sure what to make of the encounter. While he had heard strange tales in the country, he had never heard of anything like this. For her part, Harold's mother firmly believed that her son had met the devil himself. To that end, she promptly had him dress in good clothes and took him to the local clergy for a blessing. Harold's father later spoke to nearby neighbors to see if they had encountered anything strange. While a couple of area residents said they had recently heard a bobcat, none of them had seen any out-of-place children. The family decided to keep the story quiet. If by chance their son had encountered the devil, they didn't want any talk about it or anything that might cause the black-eyed boy to return. So really, not an episode you'd see on the Andy Griffith show. No. <laughs> Definitely o not. Hope he goes running to uh, Andy Griffith and says, uh, hey. Well, yeah, first I'm, of all, Andy wouldn't kid. bring a shotgun. He wouldn't bring He'd just go out and try and reason with it. <laughs> no, the, yeah. And he would actually talk him down. Like, you're right. I should give up this spooking people into hell kind of thing. <laughs> Barney, he's got the one bullet. So yeah. he's got to save that for a really important occasion. Well, I feel like if it's not silver, it's not going to work. <laughs> well, here's something that predates the internet by a long, long time. And the point about this story is that there's really no mention of a black-eyed kid, even though the description is pretty much pointing out that that's what they're dealing with here. But they call it a demon boy, a hell boy, something that is demonic, not good, not of this world. But they're using the terms of the time. Yeah. It's very religious, it's rural, and that's how they come to view stuff, is that this is a product of the devil. But not the black-eyed kids as we see. There's no hoodie, there's no skateboard, there's no, I gotta come in and use your phone. It's just, you gotta come with me, kid. Don't you run away from me. Yeah. And so it's all the bellwethers of this kind of being, and again, going out there and it's totally disappeared. But this is a very small town. Where are this kid's parents, if he is real? So again, it's got all the same kind of markers on it, but a different era. And that points to the larger questions like, well, why haven't we heard about these black-eyed kids all throughout history? And the answer is maybe you have. Which brings us to the next group predating the Herald story 
from 1950. We're going to go back even further now to the Iroquois Indians. Now, the Iroquois are a historically powerful Northeast Native American confederacy. I'm reading this from Wikipedia. They were known during the colonial years to the French as the Iroquois League and later as the Iroquois Confederacy and to the English as the Five Nations prior to 1722, later as the Six Nations, comprising the Mohawk, Onondaga, Oneida, Cayuga, Seneca, and Tuscarora peoples. And the general historical consensus is that this group was formed probably sometime in the year 1142. Again, predating the internet (laughs) by a little bit. Right. One of our main contributors in the Astonishing Research Corps, Marissa, dug up some pretty fascinating information about them. And she found this amazing website called I Never Saw Such a Place, (laughs) as I never saw such a place. And this website belongs to a guy named Andrew Cross, but he has the stage name of Barlow, and he used to have a morning show in Oneida, New York, back in the 80s. And he lived up there, and that's right in the region of the Mohawk Valley, And while he was in that region, he collected a lot of information about local lore and legends. He's very much interested in it, pretty much the same way that we are. And his website is really entertaining. So on this website, there's a section called Mohawk Valley History, and he's taking information in if people want to send stuff in. And this posting that Marissa found is the only really in-depth description that was well summarized of the Iroquois legend of the Otcon, and we wanted to share what he wrote with you, and he gave us permission to uh, read this posting directly. So I'm going to read it to you now because it goes a long way towards explaining this legend that predates anything that happened to Brian Bethel by hundreds of years. The Black-Eyed Kids of the Iroquois Legends Like many world societies, the Iroquois talk of a good energy and a bad energy. The positive life force or divine energy was called something that sounded like Orinda, Since many of the Iroquois linguistic nuances were not documented officially, there is some debate as to the correct pronunciation, but not the concept of Orinda. The positive energy of Orinda could be channeled to do anything and could be enhanced through virtue, training, and life experiences. However, opposite the Orinda was the Otcon. The Otcon, and it could be Otcon, I apologize if I'm murdering this pronunciation, is a broad term for the negative energy things, beings, and or forces that live in the world around us, as well as try to penetrate this world from the underworld, the skies, or other dimensions of consciousness and reality. Akkan was considered by the Iroquois an evil energy that could possess, destroy, and be focused as a weapon against people, objects, and animals. Some historical accounts have stated that the Mohawks of the Mohawk Valley believed strongly in the existence of witchcraft, and those who wielded the negative power of Atkan were often said to be influenced by the evil-minded one. This dark archetype was a Satan-like being who some said took the form of a reptilian snake man. Sound familiar? It was said that the evil-minded one was trying to manifest itself in human form and often tried mating with unsuspecting Iroquois women. The result of this union was a possessed offspring with black eyes and pale, chalky skin. A black-eyed infant was usually killed at birth by tribal elders and burned to prevent resurrection. These black-eyed kids, or BEKs as they are called in modern times, often never lived past a day or two after they opened their eyes. Other times, unlucky Iroquois children who found themselves lost or alone in the woods were easy targets for the evil-minded one to project Atkan into, 
Children would wander from the tribe and come back empty, with black eyes replacing their once normal eyes. It was said that the evil-minded one had stolen their Arinda and replaced it with Atkin, and they were now his loyal servants, doing his bidding and infecting other children with Atkan. The black-eyed kids were said to be peculiar acting, repeated themselves frequently, and paced around nervously. These evil black-eyed kids caused havoc amongst their tribe as their goal was to destroy it with Atkan. The black-eyed children infected with Atkan were said to be ferocious, mean, and often had a taste for human flesh. The folk we all call the Mohawks refer to themselves as the Kanyukahaka, which means people of the flint or people of the crystals. The name Mohawk is indeed a slur bestowed upon the Kanyukahaka by their northeastern rival tribes who told gullible white settlers of the Mohawks. The Mohawk name is said by some historians to mean people eaters, with a likely source of that tied to the legend of the black-eyed children. At the end of this article, this blog entry that Barlow has on his website, there's a photo of an archaeological find that was discovered by a man named Andrew J. Davis Jr. in 1914 in Mohawk, New York. It's a piece of Mohawk art painted on buffalo skin from around the 1600s. And what you see in this art is a young Mohawk man, and he has two snakes coming out on either side of him that represent the Atkan. But what you notice the most about it, especially in the context of what we've been talking about tonight, is that the young man has black eyes. So that's a pretty early story, right? Yeah, that one goes way back, but it's not actually the oldest one we found. Uh-huh. We had a listener who, when she heard your call for experiences with black-eyed children on the last episode of Bell Witch, she thought we needed to know that there were some startling similarities between black-eyed children and a Scandinavian folklore tale about something known as the mealing. Now, this is part of Scandinavia's history. Yeah, and I believe the way that she sent the spelling to us is M-Y-L-I-N-G-S, mealings. Yes. Like different, these types of creatures. Right. This woman is fascinating. I'm so glad that she reached out to us. Her name is Saga Mariah Sandberg. And I did ask her how to say her name. So thank you, Saga. For <laughs> yeah, yes, of course, every you. time I email her, it's like 2 a.m. her time. <laughs> she sent in this email and gave us permission to read it on the air. So I just wanted to... Oh, by the way, she's an unbelievable artist. Yeah, Just yeah. amazing. And the other thing that's interesting about her name is that it means fairy tale in Swedish. Yeah. And it means epic tale in English. Right. I think uh, my friend Arnie, who lives in Seattle, he's of Norwegian descent and speaks Norwegian. He named his kitty Saga. And the way he explained it also was that uh, it means epic tale. So, you know, it's... Kind of the same thing. Fairy tale, epic tale. So his cat has like a huge tail, right? I, I think normal size. Oh, yes. oh, oh no, I'm misunderstanding. Right. No, no, yes, exactly. You. Not an epic Dead jokes brought to you by Astonishing Legends. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but I did want to mention that Saga's artwork is just absolutely stunning. It's beautiful. And when I complimented her on it, she said quite a lot of it was created while listening to Astonishing Legends. Oh, so it's pretty awesome. We're inspiring people, sort of. Yeah. yeah. So we have a link to her website. You should definitely check it out. It's really beautiful work. So here's the email that she sent us regarding the mealing. A mealing was in Scandinavian folklore the restless soul of a child left to die in the wilderness, usually by a mother unable to care for it or to conceal an undesirable birth. Deprived of a name and a proper burial, the mealing seeks revenge. The mealing will ask you permission for things. Does that sound familiar? Mm. And they may also want to hitch a ride from lonesome travelers. Uh. A lot of common ground here. Mealings were believed to be encountered in places where the mother 
or the young parents would leave their child to die, such as marshes, outhouses, cairns, and forests. From these places, you could sometimes hear a child crying or calling out for help. The only way to give the mealing the rest it seeks is by finding the infant's body and give it a proper burial in the family grave. Sometimes the mealing would approach a lonesome traveler passing by and cry out, Give me a name! And the traveler should help it by saying, You can have my name. My name is whatever that person's name is. And this would calm the mealing's restless soul. The saying goes that if a mother or the parents have any more children, the restless mealing will come back one day to claim the lives of their new children. The longer the mealing gets to roam the earth without a proper family grave, the older it slowly gets. One tale tells of a young bride that during her wedding was visited by a strange child that insisted on dancing with the young bride. Once she accepted the dance, she couldn't stop and danced until she fell dead because the strange child was a mealing seeking revenge and preventing his mother from starting a new family. Another tale from Bergslagen in Sweden tells of a farmer who, coming home late from the inn, met a little boy on the road saying, Grandpa, Grandpa, may I nurse? The old man refused to answer, but when the boy continued to ask his question, the man finally replied, If you have a nurse, go suckle, but you will not get any milk from me. And the boy went off. When the man came home to his cottage, he found his young daughter dead in her bed with blood flowing from her breast. The man's reply had given the unnamed boy permission to take revenge on his young mother. The tale ending with, quote, when the boy was given the permission to nurse, he knew where to go, unquote. If a mealing were to be buried under the floorboards of their house, they would sing to their family through the floor. The mealing usually means no harm to the elders of their family, but will contact them in order to get their wish of proper burial sorted out. The word mealing, or murding, comes from Norse, mirtha, which means murder. Hence, mealing means murdered. Mealings look like children, but they are described as slender and sometimes with hollow eyes. So that is from Saga. Thank you mm. very much. Mm-hmm. That's Scandinavian folklore, folks. And it's the telltale mealing under the floorboards. It really is the telltale mealing. And we had a hard time finding an origin date, as you might with cultural folklore that goes back that far. Right. But we're pretty sure it predates Christianity. Yeah. Which, yeah. again, is before the internet. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I. How do I know? I wasn't there. Boy, these kids today. Well, what is going on here? Is this just another internet age fad, a hoax, a massively organized worldwide prank, or is there something to all these stories? Is this a thing? We don't have any definitive answers for you, unfortunately, but then who can say what's going on for sure? However, like any paranormal investigator or any detective in general, what we can do is observe and record any patterns, then use them to try and piece the puzzle together. So as you've heard from the tales tonight, there do seem to be recurring themes or patterns, and they're not the same in every story. But a lot of them are the same or similar. And one of them seems to be the telephone. They demand that they come inside to use it. Your cell phone is no good, but they need to use your landline. Now, is this just an excuse that necessarily requires them to come inside? 
Or do they need to actually connect to an analog line for some reason? Is that why your telegraph will do? Or do they just not realize what century it is? Do they ever really call anyone? Sometimes it's not your phone. They just need you to give them a ride. Or they want to take you somewhere. They demand it. They insist on it. And they're young. Mostly boys, but sometimes girls. Usually teenagers or kids, because our natural tendency is to want to help out kids who need it. And they know it. Another common element here is that they want to invade your space, whatever that space may be. But first, they need your permission. Why? Why don't they just push past you? And what happens when you give it to them? Nothing good, as far as anyone can tell. One thing that always seems to be the same, though, no matter what their demand is, what decade, what country, what time of day, the eyes, they're all black eyes. We were lucky enough to have received an email just this morning from a listener named Michael W., a dad with three sons who bravely and generously decided to share his story with us and you as well. Why do we say he was brave for sharing? Well, because if you've had something like this happen to you, you know, anything paranormal, you'll know why. If you haven't, you need to think about how people generally judge these kinds of stories. And sadly, sometimes the people that tell them. If you're wondering why we don't hear these kinds of stories all the time, or why you don't think there are many in print from the pre-internet era, that's why. But the people we've received contact from so far, well, we've done our best to personally verify them and who they are, and we stand by their accounts. More people have had these kind of encounters than you might think. And if you don't think that's true, you can try a little test. Sincerely ask the people you know if anything strange or even paranormal has ever happened to them. We think you'll be surprised by the answers. Some of the stories for this series come from the internet, so enough said. Some come from you, our audience, our community of fellow human beings, from skeptic to believer and everything in between, who, for whatever your personal reasons and beliefs, love to hear stories like this. And, as it's often said, not all of these stories have to be true. Just one of them does. So we'll leave you with this last brief story tonight, read in its entirety, just as we received it. Keep that in mind as you listen to it, because if it is true as we believe it is, then it shows that even the most innocent among us are not beyond the reach of these terrifying entities. Who knows? After you finish part one of our series tonight, you might get an unwanted visitor yourself. Gentlemen, I love your show. I am fully skeptical and generally listen to your show as just some really fun stories. However, I've had one experience that only my middle son and I know about. I have triplet sons and the middle one, Isaac, is on the autistic spectrum. He's always had a weird and lovable view of the world. In any case, he and I share a more nocturnal time schedule for our sleep. About four years ago, he was up way too late and we were snuggling and watching TV. It was about 11, a little after, and we got an insistent knock on our door. It wasn't frantic, but it wasn't far away from that. So I got up to check it out. It was late fall in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. At night, it gets pretty brisk. There were two kids at the door, dressed inappropriately for the weather. The older one was definitely a girl, but I didn't get a great look at the younger one. She said she needed to come in and use our phone. I need to use your phone. I tried to explain that we didn't have a landline, but I could let her use my cell. 
She insisted more than once that she needed to call her mom. I need to call my mom. Now, to be clear, 11 at night on a cold night with two kids at the door, my first instinct is to let them do what they need to do. But this was creepy. I can't really explain why. Just before I was about to decide to reluctantly let them step into my kitchen to warm up, Isaac came running out of the den, really panicky, right on the verge of tears. He grabbed me around the waist and was screaming, don't let them in, over and over again. I turned to calm him down, and when I looked back, the kids were looking right at him, totally emotionless, but I got a feeling that they weren't happy with him. They had no eyes, just black voids where they should be. I slammed the door, and we killed the lights and darted back to the den. I don't know if I was trying to talk myself into something rational or what, but my son fell asleep. I couldn't. A little bit later, maybe an hour later, he woke up crying and could only say, I hate that story, but it happened. That's going to wrap up part one of our series on black-eyed kids. We'll be back next week with part two. Special thanks to Sasha Turbo, Penny and Olive Epstein, Liz Kakowski, Ryan McCullough, Kristen Faircloth, and my son for providing voices for tonight's show. As always, special thanks to The Ark. Please remember to support our sponsors. And if you'd like to attend our meetup in L.A. on December 2nd, RSVP on Facebook or via email to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Remember, our theme is available as a ringtone for both iOS and Android. Android. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi, I'm David Mars. Ron Burnson. M as in Mothman, A as in Astonishing, and X as in Xenomorph. And I give Astonishing Legends my voice in perpetuity. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply.